The following message is by Dr. Matt Thornton, pastor of North Bryant Baptist Church. For more information, we encourage you to visit our website at northbryantbaptist.org. Robert Ingersoll was a, a famous politician and author and orator in the 1800s, and in his life, he was very much against God. He was a champion of agnosticism and was even given the nickname, the Great Agnostic. I don't know if that's a nickname that you want, but at one of Ingersoll's lectures, he took out his watch and he issued this challenge to God. He said, I will give God five minutes to strike me dead for the things I've said. The minutes passed by one, two, and when five minutes passed, nothing happened. Ingersoll put his watch back in his pocket as if he had won some sort of victory or proved some point. And when a certain preacher heard about this stunt, he said this, Did Ingersoll think he could exhaust the patience of the eternal God in five minutes? In the previous verses of 2 Peter that we studied last week, Peter proved the absurdity of a scoffer challenging the promise of Christ's return by using the logic that things never change. Peter pointed out things have changed. God has changed things in the past, and he will do so again in the future. But then perhaps the challenge of a scoffer shifts, and he says, okay, then what's taking God so long? If he were really going to return, why hasn't it happened already? Does God not know about all the wickedness going on? Does he not know about his servant's suffering? And perhaps even Christians begin to doubt, begin to grow impatient, grow lazy as the days and the years and the centuries pass by without the return of the Lord. And that's where these verses come in today. In verse 8 and 9, we're going to consider the perspective and the patience of the eternal God. Let's read these verses together. Peter writes, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Sometimes we overlook how verse 8 begins because the end of the verse about time is so fascinating, and then the next verse about God's patience is just so powerful. So sometimes we jump in without even remembering what started it all. But we need to, uh, it's important not to miss the first part of verse 8 here because it explains why Peter even brings this up in the first place. Verse 8 and 9 are less about answering a scoffer's objection and more about encouraging believers who may begin to doubt or question the Lord's return. Notice Peter uses this great word again, beloved. It almost makes them slow down and, and reconsider who they are. God loves them. Peter loves them. This is for believers, beloved. And he issues a command to them 
And the command is, don't be ignorant of this one truth. I love the word ignorant here. It's your word, uh, your translation may use overlook or escape your notice. But I love it that it's from the same word Peter used in verse 5 when he described how the scoffers deliberately overlook something that's staring them in the face. They, they disregard willful ignorance here of, of the changes that God has made in history. They fail to see it, even though it's obvious. They refuse it. And so now Peter used the same word to show a difference between scoffers and believers. While they mock the promise of Christ's return because they willfully overlook something, we, on the other hand, must never overlook something. It's a continual prohibition. We must never lose sight of this. And it's a truth that if we'll remember, that if we'll always consider, it will keep the scoffers from creating skepticism in our own hearts. It will keep us from doubting Christ's return, from wondering what's taking God so long and from questioning his timing. So what is that truth that we must never overlook? It's that God's relationship with time is different from our own. And to prove this, to demonstrate this, Peter quoted from Psalm 90, which we read earlier in the service, that, that prayer psalm of Moses. And I want, to, I want you to listen to just a few of the verses again. I'm just going to read verse 2 through 4. Moses wrote this thousands of years ago. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it's past, or as a watch in the night. So Peter quotes from Psalm 90 and verse 4, and he even sort of adds, adds to it a bit, right, by reversing the statement to begin with. He said, one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. And when we're considering this, this, this small word that Peter uses, as, is important. And I know this isn't school, and so I apologize for the English lesson that, that, that's about to happen. But Peter's using figurative language here to teach us something important. And it's a, it's a literary device called a simile. And all the kids just go, oh, no. <laughs> a simile is where you compare two things that seem completely different by using the word like or as. One of the most well-known similes in our culture is probably this one. Life is like a box of chocolates. Say, those seem very different. How can you compare life to a box of candy? Well, there is a similarity. There's some sort of overlap. There's some comparison that we want to make when we finish the statement, right? Life is like a box of chocolates. Why? You never know what you're going to get. Just like you don't know what, what filling might be in that assorted candy box you're reaching for, you don't know what today's going to bring. We don't know. And so they're very different. But there's also a comparison to be made. So what in the world is the comparison that Peter can make here between a thousand years and a day and then reverse it? 
How is that similar? How is there a connection or an overlap when you have such a long period of time and such a short period of time? Well, it's all a matter of perspective. That's exactly what Peter meant and what he said when he said this, this three little words. Notice in verse 8, with the Lord. The word with ultimately gives the picture of something being nearby, something being in close proximity, which then leads to the nuance of, of the word Peter used here. It's that, it's that of perspective. It's that of viewpoint. It, it means in the sight of or in the judgment of or in, or in someone's opinion. And that's Peter's point here. From our perspective, a millennium and a day are not similar at all. But from God's perspective, they are. God's relationship with time, his viewpoint on time is completely different from ours. And I think we can grasp that in some very small way by just thinking about our own perspective on time in our lives. Have you ever been in a waiting room? Or maybe in a classroom with a teacher you didn't like? Or working on a job you just couldn't stand? Maybe you only waited for an hour. Maybe the class is only one hour long, but you said what? It felt like an eternity. Well, no, it wasn't. It was only 60 minutes. But it felt like an eternity. But when you're with your friends or you're doing something you love or you're listening to one of Brother Matt's sermons, time flies, right? Time flies when you're having fun. Does it really, though? One hour is still 60 minutes, isn't it? What changed? Only our perspective, our viewpoint. And so sometimes our viewpoint changes because of what we're doing. Sometimes it changes as we age, doesn't it? When you were a child, if, if, at least if you were like me, it seemed like an eternity between one birthday and the next. And, and waiting on Christmas Day to arrive was torture. But you older adults, and as I age, I see this. Does it seem like the years fly by now? Does it seem like the calendar pages just fall off a whole lot quicker than they used to? Do they, though? Did time change or just your perspective? And so I think we can at least grasp in some, again, very small way the idea of even though time is, is this constant standard measure machine, it, it is what it is, our perspective of it can change. Our viewpoint can change. And that's just us on a tiny scale. Think about God. On an infinitely larger scale is God who has a totally different viewpoint than we do. We're bound by it. We are born in it. Um, we're slaves to it. Think about how often in your life the clock affects you. You set your alarm, don't you? Why? Because you got to get up and get to school on time or you got to be at work on time. What time is lunch? How many minutes till I get off work? How many more days till the weekend? We, we make countdowns till our next vacation or till, till the next holiday or the next, you know, till your retirement. 
We mark off birthdays and anniversaries. Time is all we know, and there's nothing we can do about it. To steal a phrase from one of Brother Jordan's songs, we are in a capsule of time. But it's a capsule of time that God made. That's why his viewpoint, that's why his perspective is completely different from ours. He's outside of the hourglass of time looking in. He's the inventor of it. Think about this. Time has not always existed. God made time just like he made everything else. God was the one who pushed play, so to speak. What are the first three uh, words of the Bible? In the what? Beginning. He started everything, including time. In fact, this is one of the greatest arguments for the existence of God and for the fact that the universe has a definite starting point. It hasn't always been. God created it. In the world of apologetics, this is known as the Kalam argument. You don't have to remember that word later on. Kalam is the Arabic word for eternal. And what the argument states is this. You cannot have an infinite number of yesterdays. It's a logical point that just proves the universe started at some point. So put on your philosophical hat for a minute and think with me. If time was never created, but it just simply existed, then we could never go back in time far enough to arrive at day one. We could never find the starting point because there would always be another yesterday to go back to. And then another, and then another, and, and then another. And so if that were true, if there were an infinite number of yesterdays, how did we get here? How did today arrive? So a very famous Christian apologist said it this way, if past events were infinite, then it would be impossible for the present moment to arrive, for it is impossible to cross the infinite to get to today. And I love the way he ends this phrase. He says, so today could never arrive, which is absurd, for here we are. <laughs> Since we are in the present, we are here this very moment, then even time had a beginning. Someone in this universe is so powerful that he can even create time, even though time binds us completely. That's how powerful God is. Listen, Time is dependent upon God, not the other way around. His perspective is totally different. Therefore, what Peter said, with the Lord, one, one day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like one day. I can't begin to comprehend all this, but consider God's omniscience and omnipresence for a moment. He is so present in one single moment that to him it's like it stops. 
It's, it's like slow motion to us. That one moment can last and last in God's perspective because he knows every single thing going on at that moment. He knows every thought in the hearts and minds of every person in the world right now. I can't comprehend that omniscience. And yet he's also simultaneously so infinite that he can look back and the bigger picture just sits right in front of him. God's perspective on time is so different from ours. Now, all of that doesn't mean that time is useless to God. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care about it or that it has no meaning to him. Remember I mentioned earlier the word with sort of has the, the general idea at its most basic level of something that's nearby. Just like a carpenter might keep a hammer nearby, time is simply another tool in God's presence. Something he will ultimately use for his honor and glory. In the fullness of what? God sent forth his son. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son born of a woman. Not too soon. Not too late. At the perfect time. And that will happen again. In the fullness of time, Christ will return. He will. So do not ever forget the fact that God has a different relationship to time than you do. And if we remember that, then we won't doubt his return. We won't question the timing of it or wonder why, it's, why is it taking him so long? Why are you so slow for? Why are you delayed? Do you not have the power don't be ignorant of this one thing. God looks at time different than you do. And that's what Peter mentions next as he moves on into verse 9, sort of this idea of God being slow. Verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. Slack means slow or slowness here. That's the idea of the word. It's the idea that God is slow, that he's delaying, that he's lingering, that he's, that he's tardy, that he's hesitating or even powerless to do what he said he would do. Listen, that word does not describe God. He is not slow. Don't ever think that the passing of time, no matter how much time passes, means that God is delayed or hesitating, or powerless to keep his promise of sending Christ back to this earth. And that's the promise Peter's referring to here. That's the singular promise he's talking about. The one the skeptics questioned in verse 5. Where's the promise of his coming? Think about this. This was written in the first century to Christians who were already suffering persecution for their faith. They were ready for Christ's return. And they were expecting it to happen in their lifetime. It obviously didn't, did it? But now much more time has passed than when Peter wrote this. Jesus still hasn't returned. Say, so what's, what's, what's taking him so long? It's, it's been, it's been 2,000 years. It's like a weekend to God. Why has so much time passed? From God's perspective, it hadn't. So if you ever find yourself wondering what's taking God so long, just remember that it's not. It's that simple. It's not. But there's an even more 
personal reason as to why Christ hasn't returned yet. Yes, his perspective on time is different. But the more personal reason is because God loves you. God cares about sinners. The fact that Christ hasn't returned yet doesn't prove God's slowness. It proves God's patience. That's what this word long-suffering means in, in verse 9. He's not slow, but is long-suffering toward us or toward you. This word means patience. It's the New Testament equivalent of that great Old Testament phrase that God is slow to anger. God's patience is remarkable. Even though he's holier than we are, more righteous than we are, he's so much more patient than we are as well. We read the Old Testament and we think, my goodness, how many chances are you going to give the Israelites? One more. One more. Judgment comes eventually. But probably a lot, uh, <laughs> a lot later than we would have done it if we were in charge. Even though God is pure and holy and righteous and sin does not tempt him, it repulses him and it must be judged by him. That righteous judgment is still balanced by his incredible patience towards sinners. That's Peter's point at the end of the verse. God is so, so patient. Notice the end of the verse. Because he is not willing that any should perish. That word willing there refers to an internal desire, a wish, an intention, a, a purpose. God's desire is that no one perishes. I could chase a rabbit and ask how our Calvinist friends would, would handle that verse. I probably know what they'd say, but they'd be wrong about it. God does not desire anyone to perish. No one. The word perish here is not simply talking about physical death, although that is a consequence of sin, and it's one that our Lord defeated when he was resurrected. But here it refers to the everlasting spiritual judgment awaiting those who reject Christ, the eternal condemnation of hell. God desires that for no one. Paul said it this way to Timothy, God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's God's desire for you. If you've ever wondered, I wonder what God, God's will is for my life. I wonder what his desire is for me. First and foremost, it's that you repent and trust Jesus. That's God's desire for your life. And it's fascinating to me that even though that is God's desire for every person, God's own desire does not rule out our free will. He so longs for you to trust him, but he will not make you. He will not overrule your freedom to choose. God is so sovereign that he will, he will respect your right to be wrong. And we know from verse 7 that some men will indeed perish. 
Sadly, some will face God's judgment. Peter told us this world's kept in reserve for that. God will punish wickedness one day. He will deal with it. But that's not what God desires for you. God's desire is not to destroy, but to deliver. Peter says at the end of the verse, but that all should come to repentance. Peter used the strongest contrast he could here to show the difference between um, perishing and, and coming to repentance and this complete, completely different desire. God does not desire you to perish, but rather he desires for you to reach repentance. The idea of coming to repentance here, some have a translation that might say reach repentance. It's a really great word here. It doesn't mean coming or going. It doesn't mean to arrive at a place or to reach a, des a destination. It's not a traveling word. It's a word that means to make room for something. To have capacity for it. To be able to receive something. Once it was used to describe how many gallons of water a jug could hold. John used it at the end of his gospel when he said the world itself could not contain all the books if he wrote everything about Jesus. Wouldn't have room for it. It, it. it wouldn't have the capacity. There's not room for that. And that's this word. So is repentance something you will make room for in your heart? Do you have the capacity to humble yourself and repent of your sins before God? Will you receive him or is your heart too filled with stubborn pride to let an ounce of repentance in? God's desire for you is that you'll find room in your heart to repent and be saved. He said the same thing in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 33, 11 says, As I live, declares the Lord God, listen to this, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. That's Peter's message. So as we consider every day that Christ does not return, is another day that a lost soul might trust him for salvation before it's too late. That's God's desire for everyone. That's why he's so patient. Yes, wickedness must be dealt with. But if he came today, what of those that might have believed tomorrow? And when you think like that, this becomes an eternally weighty decision. We better be glad it's not our decision. Only the infinite mind of God who can see everything in a moment and everything far away can grasp such deep implications of that decision and sit perfectly sovereign on the universe's throne. Christ won't be early. He won't be late. He will be here at the perfect time. I feel like the return of Christ is growing closer. And I know that it's obviously growing closer every day. But it seems we can look into this world and there are things setting up that were predicted and prophesied about things that would happen before Christ's return. And 
Listen, we better be ready. We better be living, expecting it in our lives, just like those Christians in the first century did. And so consider this. Since God in his patience and his desire is for, for men to repent and he has not yet sent Christ back, how should that affect our attitudes as, as individuals and as a church? God's patience better not make us lazy. God's patience better not make us impatient or question him or doubt him. It should motivate us because we know that God can use today as an opportunity for us to spread the gospel, share his love, um, show forth good works so that others see his glory in hopes that someone we know who has yet to trust the Lord finds room for repentance. That's why Christ is not here now. Because God is patient. He wants more sinners to repent. That Christ is not ruling this earth yet does not prove God's slowness or impotence, but demonstrates he is vastly different in his perspective of time and in his patience than we are. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, I pray that you do that today. You're not ready for his sure return until you do. He's coming. You better seize the time that you've been given and take advantage of that opportunity. Don't misinterpret the patience of God like Mr. Ingersoll did when he took out his watch. No matter how much time passes before Christ returns, and no matter how many unbelievers take out their watch and say, look, he didn't come today. Beloved, never forget that God's perspective is different from ours and his patience is vastly superior. So don't ever become discouraged or disheartened or doubt God's ability or his willingness to keep his promise. At the right time, he will. And as we await that promise to be fulfilled, we join in what Habakkuk said, and we live by faith. Let's stand. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we're so thankful for who you are, for the depths of your word. We can't even understand everything about you, God. You're so much bigger. So much bigger than we are, and yet we're so thankful for your patience towards us. And God, we pray that as, as time passes and if Christ does not return, we pray that you would use our lives and use this church to help fulfill your desire for men and women on this earth to find room in their hearts for repentance. If there's someone here today, Lord, who has never done that, we pray for their salvation and any others who need to make a decision uh, in, in serving you. Thank you so much for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.